Hi, Mystery Recipe listeners. Chad here with a very special episode for you today. We're taking a break from our usual ingredient theme this week because we're participating in Nat Geo's Kids Podcast Party Ancient Egypt in honor of the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Together with other kids' podcasts, we're making an episode about ancient Egypt. If you're interested in listening to more, check out Flip and Mosey's Guide to How to Be an Earthling from Tinkercast and their episode on camels. This episode was originally made for ATK's grown-up podcast, Proof, and was originally written and produced by Sarah Joyner. So, grown-ups, if you want to hear more food stories like this one, check out Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And now, for our story. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston was built in 1909, and it houses art from all of the great artists. Monet, Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Greek and Roman antiquities. But Seamus Blackley wasn't there for those. It's July 2019, so it's hot out when Seamus arrives at the museum. He's nervous, but pretending not to be. Months of planning have led to this moment. He's carrying his kit, inside all the tools he'll need to complete the job, to get the ultimate prize. He enters the museum through the employee entrance and proceeds down to the museum's basement. There, he meets the Egyptologist that he had somehow convinced to let him down into this room. It was insane. You know, <laughs> the, the number of objects down there was incredible. An Egyptologist is someone who studies ancient Egyptian history, language, literature, religion, architecture, or art. The objects that his colleague, Dr. Love, had selected for him to test were pulled aside on a cart waiting for him. Precious Egyptian antiquities. Antiques. Real objects from ancient Egypt. And the Egyptologist hands me this vessel. And just nonchalantly, and for the first time in my life, I'm I'm touching this thing. And it's not like I'm touching some piece of tomb jewelry or something, you know, that you'd usually see out on display in a museum. I'm getting handed something held by regular people. And it it was emotional for me. The time has come. Seamus puts on a gown, a mask, a hairnet, and gloves... If everything goes just so, exactly according to plan, then maybe he could pull it off. He and his team, they trained for this, planned, practiced, and practiced again. Everything comes down to this moment. You might wonder, what exactly is this big prize? It's ancient Egyptian live yeast. Yeast listeners are microorganisms, super tiny living things that bakers use to make bread rise. Yeast eats sugar and produces carbon dioxide, which gets trapped in the gluten of bread to make it rise. And the yeast Seamus was looking for in these artifacts was 4,500 years old. And he wanted to make bread with it. Seamus would later become the subject of headlines that sounded too cool to be true. 
Father of the Xbox, an amateur gastro-Egyptologist bakes bread with 4,500-year-old yeast. But what the headlines don't tell you is that this is actually a heist. Like a bank robbery or a super-secret spy mission, the kind that you might see in movies. Because what really happened is this. Three very smart and talented people with different skills, let's call them our unlikely crew of renegades, met on the social media website Twitter, and together they made a plan. To gain access to ancient Egyptian artifacts stored in the vaults of some of the world's most well-known museums, to get 4,500-year-old yeast from those artifacts, to bring them back to life, to bake bread with yeast that hasn't been baked with since the ancient Egyptian empire. All with an audience of hundreds of thousands of supporters on Twitter. Today, I'll be telling you the story of some very old leaveners. This is Seamus, talking, as he often does, about ancient Egypt. It's like, it's the ultimate age discrimination, right? Oh, they didn't have 747s and iPhones, so they were morons. And they He's talking about the way we modern people think about ancient people. And it's true. We don't often give ancient people the credit they deserve. Seamus has big feelings about Egypt. He's in awe of ancient Egyptians. I guess I'm sort of an Egyptology creep. Seamus's enthusiasm isn't just for Egypt. He's got it for almost everything he does. He's the kind of person who, if you sat next to him on an airplane and he got to talking about his past, you'd think he was lying. Because all of that can't be true. Seamus lived a million lives before we knew who he was. Formerly a musician, jazz, piano, rock, even the steel drums at one point. Then a physicist, a high-energy particle physicist at the Fermi Lab, whatever that means. Then he became a big-time video game designer. When he was young, he produced a Jurassic Park game for DreamWorks. He went to work for Bill Gates at Microsoft, and eventually he developed the Xbox in 2001. Yes, that Xbox. And yes, all of this is true. For the sake of time, I'll fast forward a bit. After Xbox, he worked as an agent for over a decade. He's also a husband and a father of two boys. And now he's the CEO of a company, something in the tech field that does something mysterious that nobody knows about yet. Uh, we have a, a sound. Oh, hold on a second. That's the lunch gong. Yeah, when lunch shows up, we have a gong. And that's where we find him now. Somewhere along the way, on top of everything else he was doing, Seamus found the time for a hobby. I think, okay, you know, full disclosure, I think I was trying to impress a girl, and so I said I knew how to bake bread, which I maybe had seen my mother do. And so I started baking, and I realized that I really liked it. It connected with something in me. And so on and off, for many decades, I'd been baking. What started as amateur baking quickly developed into something else. 
Seamus moved from baking basic sandwich bread to the more technical sourdough. A loaf of sourdough begins with a starter that is made from something called a pre-ferment, a mixture of flour and water. As the mixture sits, the microscopic natural bacteria and yeast eventually create a sour tang and smell. This is called a sourdough starter. But this starter needs to be fed to stay alive, so at regular intervals, some of the starter is removed, and then the remaining starter will get fed with more flour and water. It's a project. And Seamus got pretty good at it. He posted pictures of his beautiful sourdough loaves on Twitter. And it was right about that time that my friend mailed me a Ziploc bag with this supposedly ancient Egyptian yeast. So... After already living a life full of stories worth telling, this is when our story begins. On Sunday morning, April 14th, as he's getting ready for his Sunday baking, Seamus wrote a Twitter post. He said, I've been working on a yeast sample that I got from, and in parentheses, redacted source, which means he couldn't tell us the source that the sample was from. He said, it's a scraping of ancient Egyptian bread pots. And then he hits tweet. This April day in particular, Seamus was baking with a yeast culture that was given to him by someone he wouldn't name. And to this day, he still hasn't. And this mysterious source claimed that the yeast culture was 5,000 years old. So just as he gets to baking, the notifications start flooding in. Twitter comes up and says, you seem to be getting a lot of responses. Would you like us to filter the responses? And think, what? I didn't, you know, it's not some Xbox anniversary or something. What's going on? Turns out a lot of people find ancient Egyptian baking really interesting. And so I knew that there were something like hundreds of thousands or a million people who were going to be looking to see if I successfully got a decent-looking loaf of bread. And, you know, and that's pressure. (laughs) When you're in your kitchen on a Sunday, puttering around, discovering that you've mistakenly attracted the attention of, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. He did bake a decent-looking loaf of bread that day, by the way. But what's interesting is what happened next. So I sent him a direct message on Twitter explaining who I was. I did science and stuff like that, and I was interested in in a culture of the yeast, if possible. This is Rich Bowman. Rich is a grad student in microbiology at the University of Iowa. Rich is honest and kind, really like science, and they're a Navy veteran. Seamus created a group for baking enthusiasts called Club Yeast and mailed a portion of the supposed ancient Egyptian yeast out to anyone who wanted it for free. Most of the feedback I got from that initial ancient Egyptian baking post was really positive, but some of it was not. And and I can't remember the specific message, but there was one from Rich where they said, hey, uh, (laughs) so what's the, you know, what's the history of this microbe and how do we know it's from ancient Egypt? Rich wasn't the only one who had questions. The way it was coming across on Twitter was, I have ancient yeast, and I thought, yeah, right. What you've got is museum dust. This is Dr. Serena Love. She is an archaeologist and Egyptologist. 
She's from California, but she lives and works in Australia. I just started asking him questions about where it came from, what time period it was, what kind of pot that he got it from. You know, was it a bread mold? What kind of context was it found? Was it a funerary context? Was it from a settlement? All of the questions. And he couldn't answer any of my questions. People rightly asked me, you know, how I knew it wasn't contaminated and where did it come from and how did I know anything about anything? And they were right. Seamus didn't know what he had. Not really. He only knew what his source had told him. So he decided to do something about it. He wanted to get ancient yeast himself so that he knew everything about it. But this is a heist, after all. And if you've ever seen a good heist movie, you know that the mastermind can't do it alone. Lucky for Seamus, he had accidentally found the perfect team of strangers from the internet to help him do it. I directly, you know, reached out to Rich and to Dr. Love, and I said, all right, well, you know, help me do it right then. Seamus Blackley. The mastermind. Dreamer, visionary, unafraid of failure, brave enough to try big things. Oh, but see, I've been publicly humiliated before, so it it ain't no thing. Dr. Love, the insider. She knows the ins and outs of museums. She's soft-spoken but confident. She collects college degrees like some collect coins. She says things like this. I'm an old kingdom girl at heart. Rich Bowman, the biologist. Rich is quiet and yet somehow also open to adventure, wholesome in the pursuit of cool research. And I mean, the work, I enjoy the work, so I enjoy what we're, you know, studying. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. At first, they made up an unlikely team. They're all so different, but it's those differences that make this plan work. They're sort of the perfect trio. The things that we don't know about the Egyptian brewing and baking process is what role did yeast play? We know the ancient Egyptians used yeast in baking, but yeast is invisible. Did they know that they were using yeast, or was it a happy accident? We also know that in the lexicon, there's over a hundred words for bread. What are the differences for all these breads? This goal the possibility of discovering even more about Egyptian knowledge and technology than is currently known, was exciting to them. Exciting enough to take this project on, outside of their already more than full-time jobs. And research possibilities aside, there's a point to all of this for Seamus, Serena, and Rich. It's an idea. What if we could taste what they tasted? My goal is to find identify, validate these microorganisms, and then use them to make bread that is as close to the bread that the Old Kingdom Egyptians ate as possible so that we can connect with them. That's my goal. But before we go any farther with the story, I had one big question that I think a lot of you might be thinking too. We know that yeast is alive, but... If this yeast is 4,500 years old, can it really live that long? So the big surprise, I guess, is that you can, it looks like some of the strains have survived this long. And I mean, we've certainly known they can survive for, you know, decades or hundreds of years. Thousands of years is really quite a thing. 
This is Dr. Joe Gray. He is a professor at the University of Glasgow, and he's an expert on yeast. We called him to talk about how yeast lives and survives over time. So they're really quite highly evolved, clever things, but we shouldn't be too surprised with that because, you know, a microorganism has a pretty brutal lifestyle in the wild. It's just out there in the big brutal world. Yeast are single-celled microbes from the fungal kingdom, which just means that they're tiny fungi. They're far more common in the world than you might guess. They're not just something that lives in the pantry of a baker's kitchen. Yeast cells are everywhere, completely invisible to the naked eye, floating all around us all the time. The life of a yeast cell has two primary functions, eat and reproduce. It often goes something like this. So the cell grows in size, it gets roughly about twice the normal size, and then divides in two to give two daughter cells. They are genetically all identical to each other. After a yeast cell is born, so to speak, it's an identical clone of its mother cell. Immediately, it needs to eat. A yeast cell feeds on sugar and starches, and when it finds a food source and it's eating and happy, it multiplies. But for the yeast who haven't been so lucky to find food... Well, they have this magic trick. They have an ability, like little sleeping beauties, to hibernate for long stretches of time. It's called quiescence. Dr. Joe Gray has studied the quiescence of yeast for decades. They're actually just out there in quiescence waiting for things to get good. That's what most cells are spending most of their time doing. And that is almost the condition that they've evolved to survive. And then occasionally they get a little bit of food, they can proliferate, make an awful lot more of themselves, and then their baby cells will then all go to sleep again. When a yeast cell is running low on sugar, it goes to sleep. Until recently, we didn't actually know how long yeast could be dormant without food. Scientists figured a couple decades, perhaps longer. That is, until spring of 2019. But what we think happened is that this yeast formed the colony. And the colony was living for 4,000 years inside the pot. Inside On April 30th, 2019, a team of Israeli scientists published a paper where they claimed to have successfully taken ancient live yeast cells from ancient ceramics. And they estimated some of these yeast strains to be about 5,000 years old. So... This is what's going on when Seamus is baking with mysterious yeast on Twitter. Which means now, Seamus, Dr. Love, and Rich know that their plan to extract hibernating ancient yeast from Egyptian pottery is possible. So, they started with phase one. Get access to the artifacts. According to Dr. Love, not all artifacts are created equal. There are a few things to consider when identifying the perfect targets. The first, what were they used for? I was actually looking for jugs and molds that would have been used as opposed to more symbolic ones, because then we know that it will actually have had yeast in it. And then it'll By symbolic artifacts, she means the kind that might be found in tombs. In ancient Egypt, members of the elite society were buried in tombs after they died, along with a bunch of stuff. Pottery, food, art, things they believed they could bring with them into the next life. 
but the pots and molds placed in the tombs may have never been used. They were often there just for show, which could reduce the possibility of finding yeast still alive inside. The second thing to consider is location. The ideal artifacts would be items that were found in settlements where people lived their day-to-day lives, aka bread jars that were actually used by everyday ancient Egyptians. And the final thing to consider, and perhaps the hardest to overcome, was access. The export permissions in Egypt are very strict, so it's very difficult to get samples out of Egypt. So I knew I had to work with existing exported materials. So I had to work with museum collections. Basically, Egypt is rightfully careful about what other countries can show ancient Egyptian artifacts in museums. And so Serena needed to use objects that were already in museums in the United States. So, Serena created a spreadsheet with artifacts that satisfy some or all of those criteria. Items that were used, found in settlements bakeries, and that are currently housed in accessible museums in the United States. And so I just started using my network as best I could to get in touch with people that I knew had collections of Egyptian ceramics. So I sent an email to about five or six colleagues and people who knew me personally and asking if you know anyone in these museums who can make an introduction. And then she waited, hoping she could get her foot in the museum vault door. Several museums completely ignore me, didn't respond to my messages at all. But then, Denise Doxey, a curator from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, or MFA, replied... The MFA was willing to think about it. Apparently, they have a very large collection of artifacts, many objects not quite beautiful enough for the display case on the gallery floor. The MFA says that they protect these less-than-perfect objects specifically for scientific study. But they're not just going to let anybody handle them. The MFA wanted to know exactly how Seamus planned on testing the items. And that is where Rich Bowman comes in. Phase two, create the test to extract the yeast. He contacted me and asked me if I could come up with a method of extracting yeast from artifacts that wouldn't damage the artifacts. Earlier in the spring, the team of Israeli scientists who had successfully extracted brewing yeast had actually broken apart the pots and soaked those fragments in a fluid in order to get the yeast out. Seamus didn't want to do it that way. Yeah, so I'm really against any kind of destructive testing at all. And in fact, it was clear to me that scraping material off the outer surface of a bread mold or a beer pot would just get you, you know, 100 years of museum dirt and modern yeast. So the idea was, how do we get inside the matrix without damaging the vessels? And Rich came up with a plan. So my original idea was to take a modified disk filter and a um, 60-mil syringe with a uh, lock top. So you just like... Basically, it's complicated. They use some cotton balls, a syringe, and some yummy yeast food. What's important for us to understand is that Rich figured it should get yeast out of the deep inside parts of the pot without doing any damage. And one day, I see you know, an email in my inbox from Rich, and they've 
completely figured out an entire protocol. And then we tried it. Rich tried it. I tried it on some flower pots that I had, you know, prepared that I'd sterilized and some that I had rubbed starter into and let dry. And we got a result back that indicated that maybe this would work. Seamus relayed the testing process to Dr. Love. Each detail had to be perfectly outlined. The MFA wanted to know each and everything that would happen to these artifacts. They went back and forth and back and forth until, eventually, Dr. Love got an email saying, Yes, yes, you can come in and test our artifacts. Phase 3. Get the yeast. Seamus booked his flight to Boston, and that brings us back to where we started the story. It was the moment he had been waiting for. And the Egyptologist hands me this vessel, and just nonchalantly. And for the first time in my life, I'm touching this thing. And it's not like I'm touching some piece of tomb jewelry or something, you know, that you'd usually see out on display in a museum. I'm getting handed something held by regular people. And it was, it was emotional for me. He tested another jar, dated to the Old Kingdom between 2649 and 2100 BCE. It was excavated at Giza, where the Great Pyramids are. He tested another jar and a couple bread jars that were recovered in a tomb. Another item, item number 37.549, was an actual dried loaf of bread. It was flat and triangular in shape, and it was dated around 2000 BCE in the Middle Kingdom. It was excavated in Thebes in 1924. Inside the loaf, you can still see the coarse flecks of whole grains that make up the bread. He tested everything slowly and carefully. I took about three hours, I did all of this, I packed everything up, shook hands with them, and I left, all as if I knew what I was doing. Which, I guess, in retrospect, it turns out that I did. So, the samples get packed up and shipped off to Rich in Iowa for testing. Except, not all of the samples. Uh, okay, yes, I did. I, I did. I, I played hooky with one sample. In any good heist film, there's a part where the hero surprises the audience and their teammates with one last secret step to the plan we all thought we knew. It's the plot twist. Here's the part where we rewind and show you what really happened. Before, back in the vault at the MFA, Seamus sampled the bread loaf, item number 37.549, as planned, in three places. But then... While the Egyptologists weren't looking, and nonchalantly so as to not arouse suspicion, he decided to take an extra sample. And with a sleight of hand, he slid the extra sample into his pocket, and nobody was any wiser. Okay, that might not have been exactly how it happened, but that's how I like to imagine it. So he snuck his, uh, let's call it extra sample, home, excited to see if he had, in fact, captured what he had hoped. Live ancient yeast. He mixed the yeast sample with water and sterilized flour, and each day he fed the sample. It's a careful process, but eventually he had a proper sourdough starter. Yeasty and bubbly and ready for baking. But after about two weeks, 
it started to smell really good. It started to smell like a starter, and it was markedly different. It was not just, you know, like, oh, you know, this starter from Pasadena smells a little bit different from the starter I collected in England, you know, last summer. It was really different. The starter smelled different, and it behaved differently, too. It fermented from the bottom of the culture instead of the top, like most modern yeasts do. If I try to bake with this yeast and do fermentation at 65 degrees or something, which is kind of, you know, winterish temperatures here in, in California in my kitchen, it just doesn't work. Bacteria take over and it fails. If I fermented at 90 or 95 degrees or 98 degrees, it's like a rocket. It makes perfect bread. Why does that make sense? Well, hey, those are the ambient temperatures on the Giza Plateau in the Old Kingdom. All of this is guesswork, of course, but exciting nonetheless. What happens next is the big thing, the thing that grabbed headlines, the thing that captivated the attention of lots and lots of people. In much the same way this story began, Seamus decided to return to social media to bake once again for a Twitter audience. On August 5th, 2019, Seamus baked with the perhaps ancient yeast culture that he had cultivated from the perhaps ancient sample he took in the basement of the MFA. And it made beautiful bread. And the bread tasted different, markedly different from other sourdoughs that I've made. As soon as the bread came out of the oven, he could tell it was different than anything he had baked before. It smelled sweeter and it tasted different. And again, I could be crazy. You know, this could be, you know, bias on my part, but it sure seemed that this was a different flavor profile from anything I'd ever used before. And that was really exciting. So he tweeted about it. In a long thread, he laid out all the work that he and Dr. Love and Rich had done. In one tweet, he writes, the crumb is light and airy, especially for a 100% ancient grain loaf. The aroma and flavor are incredible. I'm emotional. It is incredibly exciting, and I am so amazed that it worked. An interesting science experiment played out on Twitter this week. Physicist and inventor Seamus Blackley chronicled his effort to make a loaf of sourdough bread using yeast that he says has been dormant for more than four hours thousand years. A loaf of bread has been getting a lot of attention online after a picture was posted on Twitter. This bread sure looks tasty. You'd never guess the most important ingredient is from 4,500 years ago. Talk about a blast from the past. A scientist says he used ancient yeast. I'm not being dramatic. This is legit. 4,500 years old to be exact. Ancient. Dr. Love decided to pay Seamus a visit. And I was so excited that it was successful and that he was able to do it. And and then about three days later, I actually drove to his house and got to meet him for the first time. And he he baked me bread. And he as soon as I walked in the door, he hands me, you know, a piece of toast. And he's like, oh, my God, taste this. And it was absolutely fantastic. And he said, smell this and taste this. And just putting my nose into everything and eating, you know, a piece of bread. And he was so excited, and it's contagious. And it was absolutely wonderful. (laughs) When we talked to Seamus about this, he repeated again and again, we haven't done it yet. And he's right. 
The sample hasn't been genetically sequenced yet, and so there's no way to prove that it's ancient. In order to figure out what yeast they actually have, Rich is analyzing samples. There are some very stable sections of the genome, um, in specific the 16S subunit of the ribosome. This part also gets very complicated, but there is a way to look at something's DNA to see exactly how old it is. This process doesn't happen overnight, though, and the pressure is only building because now there's an audience, and the results still aren't back yet. So we wait. They hope to identify the sample soon, partially so that they can distribute it to anybody who wants it. It hasn't been lost on Seamus, Serena, and Rich, mostly because of the public feedback, that there's a tense history with the way ancient Egyptian artifacts have been removed from Egypt. And so if we can literally resurrect these organisms and return them to Egypt, then I feel that we've done something something tangible and real and meaningful to ameliorate this terrible situation that's happened historically with all of these objects and all of these important things being taken from Egypt. I think Seamus knows that he was lucky to have some really hard-to-come-by access to the sample. But that's the beauty of yeast, right? It multiplies. There's enough to go around. And meanwhile, we all wait with bated breath to find out if we'll get to bake bread with ancient Egyptians. This episode was originally written and reported by Sarah Joyner for Proof. Grown-ups, if you want to stay up to date on Seamus, Serena, and Rich's Egyptian baking projects, go follow them on Twitter. Oh, and grown-ups, if you like this episode, you will love Proof. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave them a rating or write a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted by Kevin Pang. Their executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is their managing producer. Associate producers are Terrence Johnson and Alex Kieran Cartarelli. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds produced the Proof theme music. Jonathan Roberts produced our mystery recipe theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. The post-production manager is Ken Margolis. Production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is our CEO. Proof and Mystery Recipe are a production of America's Test Kitchen. <laughs>